Climate Law Matters, interview with Elsie Blackshaw-Crosby of the LifeScape Project. Hello, listener, and welcome back to our podcast, Climate Law Matters, in which we explore the legal developments across different sectors to address the key issue of climate change. I am Steph David, a barrister at 39 Essex Chambers, specialising in environmental and climate change cases. And today I'm very pleased to be joined by Elsie Blackshaw-Crosby, Managing Lawyer at the LifeScape Project, who is going to discuss their judicial review challenge to the government's biomass strategy. Elsie, it's great to have you join me today. Can you start by telling the listener about the LifeScape Project? Of course. Thanks, Steph. And it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for the invite. LifeScape is a UK charity and our mission is to create a world that's rich in wild landscapes. And the, I suppose our USP is that we do this in a multidisciplinary way. So rather than just having a sort of a siloed approach that just focuses on law or ecology or science, we work across five different disciplines. So we work across law, science, economics, technology and culture. And to give a flavour of some of our non-legal works, obviously we're going to talk about our legal work in more detail, but our economics team is looking at sort of the use of natural capital and how that can help create lots of wild landscapes in the world. And then our ecology team is leading a number of studies looking at the feasibility of reintroducing different animals in the UK. So, for example, they're working on the social and ecological feasibility of reintroducing the lynx in England. Fantastic. And just so the listeners is aware, what's your background and how did you end up in your current role? So my background is in commercial litigation. I trained at Linklaters and then I moved to Gowling WLG when I left London. And I I suppose I always knew that I wanted to move into the third sector even before I started my training contract. And at the time, I thought I would move more into international development issues. But as I stayed longer in the city than I anticipated, my interest moved much more to sort of environmental issues, both personally and professionally. And I started thinking that actually this is where I wanted to use my expertise and spend my time and move my professional sort of time into something that's much more in line with my own personal approach and ethos. So I started bringing climate issues into my private practice and I did various bits of further studying on environmental law. And then at the end of 2020, I saw my current role advertised and decided to apply. Um, And it was a bit of a leap of faith because at that time, LifeScape was basically our CEO and no one else. And there was a sort of a board of trustees, but I kind of moved from a city law firm to a tiny charity where there was one other person. So yeah, a bit of a leap of faith, but it's paid off. And now coming up for Three years later, we've got a team of 14 members across our different areas of expertise. So we've grown, yeah, from two to 14 in three years, which is brilliant. Wow, that sounds like a very exciting project. So you touched upon this earlier when you looked at the kind of multidisciplinary approach adopted by the charity. Just so we can, as I say, focus on the law's role in all of this. I mean, what role do you see the law playing in achieving your charity's objectives? Our legal work is split into two quite distinct areas. One of them is our contentious work, where we use litigation and quasi-legal mechanisms to protect and restore wild places. And within that, we've got two specific litigation programmes. One is Litigation for Nature and one is the Forest Litigation Collaborative, which is the one that's directly relevant to the JR of the biomass strategy. But the litigation for nature has a sort of a really broad remit and that allows us to work to protect and restore ecosystems where there are systemic issues that are impacting them. So for example, 
we supported Trees for Life in a successful judicial review in Scotland against beaver culling licences up there. And we saw that really as a systemic issue to the protection of sort of our ecosystem engineer in Scotland. And then in contrast to that, we've been working with community groups up in the north of England, looking at natural flood management issues and trying to think about if there are legal ways to ensure that the authorities are taking them into account, considering natural flood management instead of really heavy industrial damming. So it's kind of really broad, but we see that there are repeated systemic issues that are stopping wild landscapes sort of existing and being restored and being protected. And so we really just sort of look to use the law to influence that and change that. And then our non-contentious legal work is, we phrase it and call it kind of rewilding law. And the idea there is much more direct support to the rewilding community on the ground. So the rewilding law isn't a sort of an area of law that exists. If you're rewilding your land, for people who don't know what rewilding is, it's basically sort of allowing natural processes to take over again, rather than sort of controlling and managing and having really heavy human influence in the way that land is managed. It's much more about letting the natural processes take over. And that involves lots of different areas of law. So you've got things like a lot of planning law is relevant. You've got lots of things around sort of like liability. You've got questions about tax. You've got questions around protected areas and protected species. Dangerous Wild Animals Act, like all of these different areas, there isn't any single lawyer in the UK or anywhere in Europe that actually knows about all of these areas. So what we're trying to do is bring knowledge into one place so that practitioners can actually understand the issues without chasing all over the place and learning can be shared rather than repeated every time. So we've created our Rewilding Law Hub, which was launched in the summer of this year. And if you have a look on it, it's on our website. You'll see there's guidance notes covering all of these different issues in a number of different jurisdictions. And the next stage of our work there, which is really exciting, is thinking about where the law might need to change to facilitate and allow rewilding to happen because the legal systems weren't designed or set up with rewilding in mind. Yeah, so I've looked at the hub and it's absolutely fantastic. I mean, in terms of the resources you have there, it's brilliant. And as you say, kind of capitalising on that expertise, not just across practice areas in the UK, but obviously also overseas. So you've got links to Switzerland. And where else does LifeScape Project have links? Well, we work internationally. So we basically work wherever we're needed. I mean, our general approach is that we work with our kind of extensive network. And if there's an issue that's being picked up and legal expertise is needed, we hope that our network will reach out to us. We're a very small legal team internally. So there's three lawyers internally at LifeScape and none of us are Swiss or Romanian or Spanish qualified. And so we work with local lawyers, usually on a pro bono basis to sort of help and advise us in those areas. You touched upon the kind of various networks and earlier you mentioned the Forest Litigation Collaborative. What exactly is that? Yeah, so the Forest Litigation Collaborative is our other main litigation programme and it's a collaboration between LifeScape and the Partnership for Policy Integrity, which is an American not-for-profit with sort of specialism in forest science. And the idea with the collaboration is that it's an equal and sort of joint collaboration that gives equal weighting to the scientific and legal expertise. And our objective is using the law to protect forest ecosystems internationally. So that means that we work together from the very beginning to build our case theories. So rather than coming up with a legal case theory and then 
bringing in sort of scientific expertise further down the line as you would typically in terms of bringing in sort of expert evidence. We work together from the very beginning. Although our remit is technically pretty broad, it's protecting and restoring forest ecosystems around the world. Our work today has really focused on combating the use of forest biomass for energy, which we think is one of the biggest threats to forest ecosystems internationally. There's a lot to be said in actually bringing together scientists and the lawyers at an early stage and regularly have experts complaining about the fact they're brought in too late and they can't therefore kind of make a change or make a difference in terms of how the case is presented. Just then to assist the listener on one point, what exactly is biomass? So biomass generally is organic material. So material from plants or animal waste that's then burned to create energy. But we are specifically concerned about forest biomass rather than biomass generally. And so forest biomass is wood which is sourced directly from forest and then burned for energy. So our focus is, for example, on whole tree trunks that are felled in a forest and then sent directly to a pellet mill to be made into wood pellets to then be burned in large power stations like Drax in the north of England. And our focus isn't so much on, for example, sawdust that's collected from sawmills and then made into wood pellets because there's quite a distinction in terms of the climate and biodiversity impacts. And so why is the Forest Litigation Collaborative concerned about its use as a renewable energy source? We're concerned about the use of forest biomass, both from a climate and biodiversity perspective. So the bottom line is that when wood pellets are burned for energy, they actually release more CO2 into the atmosphere than if you were burning coal. And that calculation is based on the unit of energy, the end unit of energy that's actually produced. So if you produce one unit of energy burning coal, you'll actually produce less CO2 into the atmosphere than producing the same amount of energy by burning wood pellets. But proponents of sort of forest biomass energy use various arguments to say that effectively you don't need to worry about these emissions and that they can be discounted from the calculations to ascertain the energy's climate impact. And these vary from various arguments which are focused on tree growth, capturing the carbon, to reliance on the sort of IPCC accounting principles, which advise that CO2 that's released into the atmosphere from burning bioenergy should be recorded in the land sector as a loss to the carbon sink in the sourcing country rather than in the energy sector. But of course, that's just an accounting mechanism. It's not saying that the emissions don't exist. And I mean, we believe that all of the, those arguments are scientifically flawed. And I mean, I think this isn't the right forum to go into the science on it. But if people are interested, then we do have a sort of a, quite a detailed scientific briefing paper on our website, the Forest Litigation website, which is forestlitigation.org. So people could go and read about the sort of the different arguments there. So we basically think that burning forest biomass for energy is a false climate solution that's being used by governments because it's a very attractive solution that allows them to say they're increasing the proportion of renewable energy, but it's just not actually renewable and it's not low carbon. And it's only going to get worse as governments move towards the use of bioenergy with carbon capture and storage. Basically, that's a technology that exists for fossil fuels as well, but it's essentially a system where at the point of release from the sort of the chimneys, the emissions are captured and then stored underground. And the idea with bioenergy, and this is really prominent in the um, biomass strategy, which I know we'll talk about, is that they say, ah, so you can do that with coal, no problem. And that will also create sort of like neutral. And I've got my inverted commas there because there's lots of issues around that as well. But because trees regrow, you're then actually producing negative emissions because not only are you capturing and storing the carbon below ground, the trees are then 
growing and they're going to capture more carbon and so you produce these negative emissions but it's it's just not true for so many different reasons and so we see it as sort of greenwashing at the highest level and then in addition to the climate impacts there's also the biodiversity impacts that are so terrible with forest biomass energy you know natural forests across eastern europe across the us across canada are being felled and the wood is going directly to pellet mills to produce wood pellets for us to burn in the uk and elsewhere and it's causing huge enormous damage to biodiversity and often rare habitats and it's also destroying the forest carbon sink which is sort of like the natural solution to so many of our carbon accounting issues it's just atrocious on so many levels yeah, and no, I can certainly see that. I and mean, before we dive into the kind of biomass strategy and the challenge to that strategy, are there any of the legal cases the FLC has been involved in? Yeah, we've got quite a few cases going on. So I'll just take a couple of examples because I don't think we can talk about all of them. But for example, in the UK, we've filed a complaint against Drax, which is a large biomass energy producer in Yorkshire. We've filed a complaint under the OECD guidelines for multinational enterprises. This is essentially a greenwashing case. And we say that Drax is breaching its obligations under the OECD guidelines. And we passed the initial assessment on that, which effectively, in sort of JR speak, there's an arguable case, but we've not had any final outcome yet. And there's been lots of delays in terms of procedure. And then another example is in the EU, we worked with seven NGOs to file a claim against the European Commission in relation to the inclusion of forest biomass energy in the sustainable finance taxonomy. And we filed all the pleadings and we're just waiting to hear whether or not we're granted an oral hearing or whether it will be heard on the paper. So that's kind of ongoing as well. And then in Estonia, we've worked on a number of cases actually. There's a very active community of NGOs in Estonia and it's also one of the biggest sort of sources of wood for forest biomass energy in Europe. We had one sort of case that was looking to challenge specific licenses for a community forest. And unfortunately, we didn't win, but we did achieve some really important legal precedents. So for example, previously, the Estonian sort of authorities had just been ignoring all of the obligations and restrictions in the birds directive around felling during the bird breeding season. And we managed to get a judgment that said you actually need to comply with these obligations. So that's been seen as really important. And we've got another case in Estonia that's looking at sort of trying to get an injunction in place for felling in Natura 2000 sites. And that's kind of being held up by procedural issues and standing, but it's going ahead. Fingers crossed. So, yeah. Wow. I mean, certainly coming at the issue at all directions, but I guess you need that, don't you? Particularly given the kind of urgency of well, climate change and the biodiversity crisis. So then coming to the biomass strategy itself. So it's obviously published on the 10th of August, 2023. And just to assist the listeners, it sets out the steps the government intends to take to, quote, strengthen biomass sustainability and the opportunities for the use of sustainable biomass across multiple sectors of the economy in support of achieving the UK's net zero target. It's relied upon by the government in both the original, that is the October 21 net zero strategy, and in the most recent report published pursuant to Section 14 of the Climate Change Act. So that's the Carbon Budget Delivery Plan. Can you just tell a listener more about what the strategy says and what it does? Of course. So the strategy essentially continues to support the unabated burning of forest biomass energy over the short term. And also puts a huge focus on the use of BECS, which is the bioenergy with carbon capture and storage, which I was talking about earlier. And it says this use of BECS will produce negative emissions. And the government is clearly relying on this in order to reach its net zero targets. In addition to the forest biomass energy, it does 
talk a lot about other sources of biomass energy. So that's agricultural crops, for example, or the use of bioenergy in different sectors, so the transport sector, for example, but that's not something that we have focused on. And also you've kind of run through the science and the kind of very helpful summary, but I mean, why are LifeScape projects specifically concerned about this strategy? Yeah, I mean, it really stems from the issues that I explained earlier, that it's not a low carbon energy solution and it can't produce negative emissions. And from our perspective, as an organisation that really cares and is focused on sort of wild ecosystem, it's the continuing destruction of sort of vitally important forest habitats that is just irreplaceable. And we think it's really important that the government faces up to the reality. And rather than sort of like putting all its eggs in this basket, which is kind of convenient for it and gives the impression of action on climate issues. We think the government really needs to invest the billions destined for BECs in genuine renewable energy solutions. Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting point that you made earlier in relation to greenwashing, because generally the focus of greenwashing litigation is in in the context of private companies, private entities and what the regulators are doing. And as you say, it's so important, isn't it, actually holding the government to account in respect of national policies and their broader plan to achieve net zero. So in terms of then the actual challenge itself, what are the grounds of challenge? Have you framed the case? Yes, I'll run through them quickly. But if anyone wants to know the details, we have published a legal summary of the case on our website, which is forestlitigation.org. So they are there if anyone wants to have a look in more detail. But in summary, we filed on three grounds. So the first one was quite a broad ground of irrationality, failure to undertake inquiry and or failure to take into account relevant considerations when adopting the biomass strategy. And we argued specifically that the Secretary of State had failed to conduct adequate analysis of the extent to which burning forest biomass will achieve genuine reductions in carbon emissions or otherwise contribute to the net zero target. And then the second ground was closely linked to the first, but instead of the broader rationality, etc., we relied on the court's judgment in the Friends of the Earth net zero case to argue that the failure to conduct the analysis was actually in breach of the requirements of Section 13 of the Climate Change Act. And then the third ground was more procedural. So we argued that the consultation that was undertaken before the strategy was published was unfair because key components of the analysis, which was relied on in the biomass strategy, were not disclosed to consultees. And in that argument, we relied on a recent judgment in Ireland, which was all about consultations and was very useful in sort of building those arguments. I'm sure I can provide that link to the legal briefing alongside this podcast once it's published and also the link to that very helpful summary of the science. And what stage are the proceedings at? So we're still at pre-permission stage and we're waiting for the government's response. So it's early days. So the final question, which I ask everyone who comes onto the podcast, what in your view is the biggest legal barrier or development in the protection and restoration of uh, wild ecosystems? It's really hard to identify a single issue, so perhaps I'll comment on a more systemic one. And I think that is that our legal and regulatory systems were not designed with rewild and ecosystem scale restoration in mind. The types of actions that we now know that are needed to tackle the biodiversity and climate crisis weren't part of our collective imagination in, for example, the 1970s or 1980s when key pieces of UK legislation were developed. So I think that a big barrier is encouraging governments and authorities to recognise this and to stop sort of harpering back to the past and the kind of the systems of control that are currently in place and instead look forward and think about a kind of a more purposive approach and how that can be adopted within the current frameworks until those frameworks are actually changed and adapted to what needs to happen now. 
Yeah, that makes a huge amount of sense, particularly when you think about it in the context of, for example, the Environment Act, which further adds to that piecemeal approach rather than looking at kind of a whole systemic change in respect of how you protect those ecosystems. Yeah, things like the reintroduction of native species in the UK, legislation around that is just basically a bit of a quagmire of different bits of legislation and who knows what's applying when, and it's really restrictive. We've run out of time for today's episode, Elsie, but thank you very much for running through what the LifeScape project does, what your focuses are, and of course the interesting challenge of the Bioma strategy. So thank you. Thank you, Steph.